the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on another installment, our Monday installment. Appreciate it. And uh, don't forget, you can follow us, danproftshow.com, on social media, at Dan Proft Show, as well as at Dan Proft. And uh, we begin uh, this program by uh, tackling a Supreme Court decision from Friday. Uh, I want to start there because I don't want this to get swept away in the weekend. The issue of the continued constriction of religious liberty, one of our first freedoms as we all combat this pandemic and frankly combat some would-be autocrats trying to take advantage of this pandemic to grow government at the expense of the individual. Here again, we have uh, Chief Justice John Roberts siding with the Jacobins on the court in uh, refusing to provide injunctive relief to a Nevada church that had uh, sued the state of Nevada because of the order under its Democrat governor that treats churches less favorably than places of entertainment, places of worship less favorably than places of entertainment, such as casinos and movie theaters. The one paragraph dissent by Justice Gorsuch, I think nicely and frankly devastatingly sums up the folly of the majority opinion. He writes, does Gorsuch, this is a simple case. Under the governor's edict, a 10-screen multiplex may host 500 moviegoers at any time. A casino, too, may cater to hundreds at once with perhaps six people huddled at each craps table here and a similar number gathered around every roulette wheel there. Large numbers and close quarters are fine in such places, but churches, synagogues, and mosques are banned from admitting more than 50 worshipers, no matter how large the building, how distant the individuals, how many wear face masks, no matter the precautions at all. In Nevada, it seems it's better to be in entertainment than religion. Maybe that's nothing new, but the First Amendment prohibits such obvious discrimination against the exercise of religion. The world we inhabit today with a pandemic upon us poses unusual challenges. But there is no world in which the Constitution permits Nevada to favor Caesar's palace over Calvary Chapel. Mm. Uh, Right. A couple of notable senators weighed in on the majority opinion as well. Ted Cruz tweeting, John Roberts has abandoned his oath. But on the upside, maybe Nevada churches should up, should set up craps tables. Then they could open? Question mark. Tom Cotton recalling what uh, John Roberts said at his confirmation hearing. Quote, if the Constitution says the little guy should win, the little guy is going to win in a court before me. Unquote. Cotton asks, what happened to that judge? He didn't mention his belief that casinos have more rights than churches at the time. For more on this. We're pleased to be joined again by our friend Rusty Reno. He is the editor of First Things, firstthings.com. Rusty, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Great to be with you, Dan. What about that Supreme Court decision and, and you know, comment in, in the larger context of how serious or fleeting do you think this uh, assault on religious liberty is sort of state by state? It's very depressing, isn't it? Yeah. It, it seems like a clear instance where the court could correct this obvious discrimination against religion. I mean, you can have hundreds of people for bingo, but only 50 for mass. 
doesn't make any sense. It doesn't seem reasonable as a policy. The only rationale for the policy would be that uh, this governor and his officials don't think religion is that important. And uh, I've seen to me the First Amendment, Gorsuch is right, the First Amendment basically says it doesn't really matter what politicians think it is or isn't important. You cannot disadvantage religion as compared to other activities in these in these kinds of policies. Right. And, and you know, going to the multiplex or the craps table is not enshrined as one of our first freedoms. Um, and, of course, freedom of worship is. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, you, you can understand this, the society becoming increasingly secular, or at least you, you recognize it. But, um, uh, you know, it's something that I think people don't appreciate. Oh, it's becoming increasingly secular. People don't want to go to church. Um, But, you know, uh, I'm still free to do my own thing, to each his own. You have to understand there is a segment in America that will not abide to each his own, even if you want that to be the cultural norm. It just increasingly is not the cultural norm including in courts of law. Well, I think we had this at the very beginning of lockdowns, liquor stores, pot stores in Colorado and in Washington where it's legal, California, medical marijuana. These are deemed essential services. They can stay open, but uh, churches can't. So we, we, we were facing this from the very beginning. And I think the courts, there were cases in the courts basically deferred to the public health officials. But, and I think that's probably what's going on here with Roberts. But in this case in Nevada, it's just it's such an obvious double standard that it really does make you shudder. It's like, where, where, where are we going as a society? Where, where are we going? Where's our rule of law heading if you can treat religious folks so much more poorly than you can gamblers? Yeah, you uh, wrote a piece. I, I dug up this piece you wrote on First Things several years ago now um, because it was— uh... It was a nice uh, uh, companion to a piece from the Wilson Quarterly by uh, Ivan Hannaford, which I'll get to in a second. But in uh, in this piece uh, about uh, loving the law, that was the entitled the piece. I'm sure you remember it. But Richard Weaver, you cite, of course, from his uh, great book, Ideas Have Consequences, the University of Chicago academic. You write to uh, Richard, Richard Weaver once made an astute observation, which was every man participating in a culture has three levels of conscious reflection his specific ideas about things, his general beliefs or convictions, and his metaphysical dreams. And you talked about uh, this again several years ago at the time. What Christians need today may not be counter-arguments, but instead counter-dreams. And I I wonder how much uh, more you're committed to that prescription several years after writing this piece than you were at the time you wrote it. Well, I feel like the division in our society really has to do with people's dreams about what a good life is what it means to flourish as a human being. And the fundamental religious proposition Jews and Christians share, Muslims share it as well, is that obedience to God's commandments humanizes us, makes us more fully human. And so far from being a limitation on our lives, our religious duties and obligations enrich us and, and give us, make our lives fuller. And a lot of our fellow citizens find that just they can't even imagine it. So it's not so much that they disagree with what Christianity teaches, as they just think that the whole project is this kind of bizarre enterprise and submitting yourself to some alien deity far above who, who um, you know, will reward and punish in the afterlife and so on and so forth. They can't even get the notion that the religious life brings joy, and the joy comes from adhering to, to God's will for you as a person. Yeah, and so that's, uh, so Ivan Hannaford, um, uh, another uh, academic who's uh, since passed, but he wrote a piece now 30 years ago, almost, 
talking about the United States' greatest challenge. And he was uh, talking about uh, the idea that race is uh, essentially the defining characteristic of separating people in uh, the melting pot that is America. He was writing about the danger of this, this balkanization, you know, at the time of mm. real balkanization uh, in, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in, in the Balkans, of course, that's the, the term. And he uh, wrote at the time, this is mid-90s, United States can respond to the, uh, it remains to be seen whether the United States can respond to the greatest challenge of all, the creation of a secular demystified politics that embraces all citizens and which secures and maintains the future safety and security in a dangerous world of accelerating a political change. And he sort of says that as a, on a hopeful note as he goes through in great detail the history of uh, race as uh, the uh, sort of the indicia of uh, a person throughout his, uh, a detailed uh, review of that. Um, genuine public life, not to mention genuine solution to racial problems, he wrote, becomes impossible when a society allows race or ethnicity to display citizenship as one's badge of identity. So he sort of has uh, part of the problem sussed out correctly, I think. And But he says, you know, the, the challenge is create a secular demystified politics that embraces all citizens, secures and maintains their future safety and security. Is that possible just by talking about goods like we're all American citizens, it, does there need to be something more transcendental or, as you talked about, sort of the uh, counter dreams, the metaphysical? Yes, I, I think that as human beings, we're always in motion. We're either going up or we're going down. We're either going up to something greater than ourselves or we're going down to something more base and more primitive than ourselves. And, and I, what I see is that part of the American genius has been to have, have a state have a vision of our nation as a sacred project without making it a theocracy. And, and so we, our, our public, our sense of civic religion, our sense of the sacred purpose of our nation uh, is something more than secular citizenship. It's something far less, of course, than our specifically Christian or Jewish uh, identity. And uh, maintaining that, that's something that it's not a stable position. It always needs to be infused with transcendent uh, meaning and purpose in uh, the America, our sense of citizenship. Because as I say, we're always going up or down. And what's happened, I think, in the last generation has been a desacralization of a sense of being American to make it more secular, as, used, as, as he uses that term. And the result is, is that people are kind of left to kind of drift down to their more primitive identity in their DNA. And this fills me with foreboding. Um, it, I want to pick. I yeah, I want to pick it up there um, and uh, and fold in an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend from a Democrat, uh, sort of openly questioning why Democrats are defending disorder. More with FirstThings.com editor Rusty Reno right after this. Show.com. Welcome back. Our friend uh, Bob Woodson, uh, Woodson Center, and uh, the founder of 1776 Unites, which was a, uh, in part, uh, counter-operation to the A Historical 1619 Project, was on with Tucker Carlson on Friday night. He had this to say about uh, big city mayors like uh, my hometown mayor, Lori Lightfoot, 
and their uh, supposed concern for poor people in urban centers, the poor people who are disproportionately, of course, being victimized, not just by violent crime endemic to certain neighborhoods in certain cities, but also the associated uh, rioting that's going on allegedly on their behalf. So Lori Lightfoot would tell you, and, and again, it's not just Lori Lightfoot by a mile. It's so it's virtually every one of these mayors that she cares so deeply about the poorest people in her city. Should we believe that? Absolutely not. I mean, and, and I believe, Tucker, that the salvation of this country may sound odd are going to be that sleeping giant. When low income blacks wake up and realize that they're being bamboozled and hustled and scammed by people like Lori Lightfoot and others, they are going to realize that the, they must address the enemy within because the left derives this moral authority as being the legitimate representatives of the poor. We're uh, rejoined by Rusty Reno. He's the editor of First Things, firstthings.com. And um, Rusty, uh, what do you make of uh, Bob Woodson's assessment, not just in terms of the left characterizing themselves as the vanguard for the poor? That's, I think, without question. Well, both sides try to do that, but the left has been more successful at it, uh, number one, in, in terms of perception. And then number two, uh, more importantly, what he said about uh, the, the prospect that it may be uh, an unlikely a group of Americans who reset the table in this country, and that is poor black Americans who've been victimized by a government that that uh, purports to uh, represent their interests and aspirations and hopes and dreams uh, rising up and saying, oh, we we need a new paradigm because this one isn't working out for us. I agree with him completely. He's absolutely correct. I think it's happening that I think the changes in our political culture have been happening for a generation now. The Democratic Party has become the party of kind of the rich university class of people that are formed by the university. Their interests now have become very much antagonistic towards the folks who live on the south side of Chicago. People are not stupid. You know, ordinary people have a sense of uh, where their interests are and who's cares about them and who's actually going to try to make their lives better. So the challenge is for the Republican Party to step up and make proposals about how to make their lives better. Um, and we, we've you know, I could call myself a Republican, enterprise zones. Uh, certainly the economy was uh, had a record low unemployment for black Americans before the pandemic. Um, so so I, I, I have some optimism that we'll have, we'll, we're, in a, we're in a time of realignment in our country and that um, if, if with good leadership, I think uh, black voters will begin to split their vote instead of voting as a monolith, because that's never good. If, you're, if your vote is always predictable, then the Democratic Party has no interest in serving your needs because it's got your vote no matter what. Yeah, right, which is precisely what's happened. And, and then, you know, again, look at the state of affairs in so many urban centers with uh, decades, if not uh, a century, of uninterrupted uh, Democrat lordship. It's sort of the how's yeah, it working I, out for you, right? Yeah, no, I, I was in Chicago last week and I went to a meeting in the Loop and then I drove out of town through the south side of Chicago, and uh, it was a lot nicer place to live in 1965 than it is in 2020. Right. Uh, you can tell. And the style of the vacant lots, empty buildings, it was, uh, so you got to ask yourself what went wrong and who was the one whose policies made it, made it worse. That's right. And, and you know, the underreported, of course, it's underreported stories in big cities like Chicago, in Chicago specifically, which I know best. I mean, 200,000 blacks left Chicago between 2010 and 2020 
they're leaving for the same reasons other people are leaving, uh, the cost of living, safety maybe in some of the neighborhoods in which they live, the quality of educational opportunities in some of the neighborhoods they live. They want better lives for themselves and their families and they're not finding it in, in Chicago or Illinois. So some are moving to the suburbs, some are moving to other states, where just like whiteness and Latinos are doing the same. Um, but that, that, that the fact that you see abdication on those numbers, which are that's a substantial number uh, in a city of 2.7 million people, a third of which are, are, are black, um, that says something about uh, what they're saying about their leadership and how it's worked out. And then the teachers union won't go back to teach unless they get their whole menu of political goals met. Uh, whatever defund the police. I don't. What what is the Chicago teachers? Union? Yeah, right. The, all that you know, Medicare so for all and whatnot. Right. Yeah. Well, well, what about the kids? I mean, you know. So if I'm a parent, you know, working class parent in Chicago, I think I'd start getting a little frustrated. Like, well, wait a minute. You know, uh, your job as a teacher is not to change American society, but to try to help my kids step up on the ladder of success. And they're clearly not doing that. And at some point, patience will run out, and 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 things will change. Uh, As I believe we're I believe we're in that political moment in our society in 2020. I, I think I traveled so. around the country hmm. this last month, and people are really angry. A lot of people are angry about all kinds of things. They're angry at the way that our country is being run. I think um, some Democrats agree with you. Uh, Ted Van Dyke, longtime Democrat. I don't know how to break it to him, but it, it's not the party he uh, has affiliated with for the last 40 years, but. He writes in the Wall Street Journal, I can't imagine Joe Biden as a vice president or a senator hesitating to denounce lawlessness. I can't imagine past congressional, state and local leaders condoning such destruction as we saw over the weekend and over the last several weeks and months in some cases, condoning such destruction as we're seeing in our urban uh, urban centers. Democrats have always supported dissent, not disorder. Many of Trump's policies deserve criticism, but this isn't one of him, his law and order position. Democrats are presenting a pro-chaos caricature of themselves, which will discredit them with the public if they maintain it. Um, that, that's a Democrat issuing a, uh, a, a warning uh, message to his fellow Democrats. Uh, but it does sort of prompt the question, well, how, how could you defend this position? Why would you defend this position? What is it that those defending or rationalizing the position of the destruction, not the peaceful protesters, but the rioters, the destruction they're imposing. How do you defend that position or rationalize it when um, you're rationalizing violence as the means to policy discussion? Number one. Number two, uh, it's perceived to be uh, politically suicidal. Look, it's very difficult, isn't it, to try to probe this. Why wouldn't Laurie Lightfoot condemn lawless attempts to destroy a statue of Christopher Columbus in, in Grant Park. You know, why, why wouldn't she uh, uh, criticize that? It's very perplexing. So I, I step back and say, you know, actually, like I said, the Democratic Party is the party of rich universities, educated people. And if you want to change the subject from income inequality in our society, one of the great ways to do it is get fixated on racial justice. So if I'm Jeff, Jeff Bezos, then... I wouldn't. I want to know where, you know, where I can, how I can contribute to Black Lives Matter, because it changes the subject from what really matters in our society, which is providing opportunities for working class people to move up the ladder of success, to break failed uh, teachers unions, and things like that. It changes the subject to, to the politics of symbolism. It's, and, it's, it's, uh, so it's, I think it's. A, I think the Democrats have a cynical reason to, to actually want this disruption. Is that 
it obscures what they've actually failed to achieve in our society for the last generation. He is Rusty Reno. He's the editor at First Things, firstthings.com. Rusty, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Great. Great to be with you. Take care. Take care. on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. And uh, Tony Fauci threw out the first pitch uh, the Nats game last week, as we discussed. Not a strong effort, but that's okay. That's not his forte in Major League Baseball. Uh, criticism came Fauci's way when pictures of him in the stands... Uh, went uh, viral on social media, uh, showing him with his mask around his chin while he's sitting next to his wife and a friend of his, and they're chatting and so forth. You know, where's the social distancing? Where's the mask wearing? Uh, and it's not so much hysteria over, is Tony Fauci going to be a super spreader? It's a question of hypocrisy, as we're being lectured by public health professionals and politicians, and uh, Tony Fauci is uh, part of that group now, after a reversal on the mask issue, uh, should uh, uh, he be held to account when it's do as I say, not as I do? He was asked about that on Fox News over the weekend saying this. There's, there's a photo of you sitting in the stands uh, with two people. Uh, you're not wearing a mask. You're not social distancing. We should point out one of those people is your wife. Uh, what about the other person? The other person, a very close friend of mine, and, John, I, I understand. I think this is sort of mischievous with this mm-hmm. thing going around. I had my mask around my chin. I had taken it down. I was totally dehydrated, and I was drinking water, trying to re rehydrate myself. And, by the way, I was negative COVID literally the day before. So I guess people want to make a big of that. I wear a mask all the time when I'm outside to pull it down, to take some sips of water and put it back up again. Uh, I guess if people want to make something about that they can but to me i think that's just mischievous john uh perhaps and uh i agree to some extent but what's actually more mischievous to me is his response there wear it outside all the time uh, number one i thought it was inside uh they should be required or best practices and uh where you can't social distance because we know don't we that there's basically zero transmission outside that would have been my response, or I would appreciate the response a little bit more if Fauci had said, oh, by the way, we know there's transmission does not occur outside. We know from recent studies that uh, something on the order of 98 percent of the transmission has occurred within households. So in point of fact, the lockdown orders keeping people together in confined spaces like their home has arguably exacerbated the spread. But that's me. There's a lot of... Uh, uh, information that's running into contradictions uh, with other information. And to help us sort it all out, we're pleased to be joined again by Professor Martin Kaldorf. He's a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Professor Kaldorf, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Nice to be on again on the show again. Yes, uh, great to have you. And uh, let me just ask you sort of the top line question. Um, are masks a potential game changer if everybody wore them all the time? I am doubtful about that. If they work, uh, they may work a little bit, but I don't think it's a game changer. And so um, the emphasis on masks 
is uh, you, you, know, you can have a conversation and debate anything. It's fine. But the emphasis as this sort of like seminal, you're on one side or the other, and this is where the rubber meets the road in terms of our ability to defeat this virus, that is misplaced energy? Well, let's give an example uh, uh, from Sweden there, because uh, Sweden was the only country that did not close its uh, schools. It didn't, it didn't close the daycare centers, nor primary school, nor middle schools. And for 1.8 billion children in Sweden, of the pandemic, and of these 1.8 billion children, exactly zero of them uh, died in COVID-19. And none of these children were wearing any masks in, in the school, which is, of course, very difficult for children to do. So it's an example where the fact that they didn't wear masks in schools did not have any negative consequences uh, in terms of uh, the mortality in COVID-19 for these children. Well, and we also uh, understand, uh, per some uh, look at this by uh, Edinburgh University uh, uh, public health professional, Woolhouse is his name, that they, they can't find a documented case. They're looking, cannot find a documented case of COVID-19 being transferred from a student to a teacher. That might be. I, there probably are some uh, rare cases of that. It would be surprised if there wasn't. But uh, unlike influenza, the schools are not like a driving force behind the pandemic. In influenza, the schools are very important in terms of that's where a lot of the spread uh, is happening. Uh, but for COVID-19, it's very different. Uh, when we come back, I, I want to, since you r- brought up the issue of Sweden, I want to talk about Sweden a little bit because it continues to be the whipping boy uh, among certain segments of the public health community. And I wanted to get your reaction to uh, some two dozen doctors and scientists, Swedish doctors and scientists, uh, an op-ed they penned for the USA Today that says Sweden's approach to COVID-19 isn't working, cautioning not to do what Sweden did. More with Martin Kaldorf. He is a professor at Harvard Medical School right after this. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back. We're talking to Professor Martin Kaldorf, who is a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. And as I mentioned before the break, 25 Swedish doctors and scientists penned this op-ed for USA Today saying the Swedish model is a failure. Don't do what we did. It's not working. Maybe uh, epidemiologists and the the country's public health authority believe that the Swedish approach of uh, a light touch, keeping schools open and so forth, was appropriate and sustainable. But... um, it is not achieving herd immunity, and um, it is uh, a mistake that Sweden made. H- how do you uh, assess that? Because I've seen other competing op-eds, we've talked about them in the show, that says, for example, well, by the numbers, Sweden has done much better than many Western European countries, as well as many U.S. states, including most notably New York State. Yes, the death count in Sweden right now is higher than some parts of the U.S. and is lower than other parts of the U.S., like New York or, for example, Connecticut. But the really key thing is, and overall, that right now the death rates in the United States is going up while the death rates in uh, Sweden is continuing down. So, it's sort of, And that's what you would expect. If you do a harsher lockdown, you would sort of temporarily 
uh, reduce the number of deaths, but you're postponing them to the future. You know, it's it's interesting too because uh, you have some in the media, some politicians, you know, grabbing onto statements made by uh, people like uh, Dr. Henry Miller who, from the Pacific Research Institute we spoke with last week, who said, you know, we're still in the early days of this pandemic, and that's sort of what uh, Johan Gusecki, the former top epidemiologist for the country of Sweden, said uh, a couple of months ago. You know, don't talk to me about uh, what the uh, uh, rates of, of infection, hospitalization and death are, you know, in the next 60 days. Let's look at it. Let's come back a year from our conversation today. This is back in March. And let's see where everybody stands, because uh, he understood exactly or I think he was taking the same position that you're taking about the nature of this virus and the nature of what lockdowns can and can't do. And so. Uh, and the one hand, saying the early days is it could get a lot worse. Well, the other approach, the other thinking of this is early days, too much, too too early to make uh, long term assessments on whose approach was the best. But um, the trend lines matter, and and the trend line, as you say, in Sweden is uh, perhaps uh, uh, more positive than in the United States and other Western countries. That's very true, and most uh, infectious disease technologists understand that, and like uh, Johan Giesek uh, does. If it wasn't such a serious matter, it would sort of be a kind of a funny situation with these 25 scientists in USA today, because if you look at them, the one top on the list is a religious study scholar. And if you go down the list, you find a mathematician, a psychologist, and those in the medical field, there's an oncologist, uh, uh, somebody who's got research in maternal health, and so on. And those are all very important uh, areas to do research in, but of these 25 people, only one is an infectious disease technologist, and he's an expert on zoonotic diseases, uh, which means diseases in animals, uh, in his case, birds, and how they can uh, 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 move towards the humans. So it's sort of interesting that uh, uh, some scientists are very uh, willing to make very definite statements in about areas of science, which is not their areas of expertise. Well, and also, too, you had the study come out uh, last week from the public health departments and public health agencies of both Finland and Sweden that find that uh, the infection rate among uh, uh, students under the age of 19 in both countries was virtually identical. And as you mentioned, zero deaths in either country among students, even though Finland uh, locked down their schools, closed their schools, and Sweden did not, as we know. And and so that would sort of speak to the issue of, well, um, how are they if they if they're achieving the same results um, minus the uh, opportunity costs, minus the hidden costs that we're not contemplating the educational, intellectual, social development of the kids who were doing remote learning, which hasn't proved particularly productive in the West, including in America. Um, then why wouldn't you do the Swedish approach as opposed to the Finnish approach? Yeah, I agree. And uh, not only uh, is schools important for the education, but it's also uh, known that uh, having more education is good for, for the health of the children Yeah. Uh, in terms of both short and long term, with the mental health as well as physical health. Uh, what also was interesting, I think, with this uh, particular study is that they also looked at teachers and uh, they compared the risk of COVID-19 infection in the teachers versus all other, the, the average of all other professions in Sweden. 
and the teacher had the same uh, risk of COVID-19 as the average of all the other professions. Uh, I want to get your... Which is a very good thing and so sort of reassuring if you're a teacher. It should be, but it doesn't seem like this information is getting to a lot of teachers or or at least teachers' union bosses. But there was, uh, in the Chicago Tribune, I want to get your comment on, on this because I think this is emblematic of a lot of the rhetoric you're hearing from teachers who don't want to resume in-person education. Lindsay Jensen is the 2018 Illinois Teacher of the Year, and uh, her reaction to the prospect of schools reopening, what if a student or educator dies, or what if a 14-year-old comes to school with COVID and is asymptomatic, passes on to his friend, and kills his best friend's mom, or his best friend's little sister who has a compromised immune system? Will schools be provided the resources they need to provide extra social workers and counselors to help students and staff navigate that unimaginable trauma? Will districts have the resources they need to provide teachers with professional development in the areas such as trauma-informed practices and social-emotional learning? That strikes me as wildly overwrought, but um, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not a position that's widely held. How, how would you respond to that teacher? We have to look at it at the population perspective. So, for example, there are, by the second week of July, there were 36 children under the age of 14 who had died in the U.S. of COVID-19, all very sad. But during the same time period since February 1st, there were 104 who had died of influenza and around 10,000 who had uh, died for all causes. And all of these are very sad. So we have had many deaths and there will be more, but the purpose should be to minimize those deaths. So in terms of schools, the children are safe and there's no reason to close schools and not have uh, in-person teaching, even under the height of the pandemic, which is what Sweden had. The two concerns I have about the schools opening is one is that the lockdown has uh, the vaccination rates plummeted during the lockdown, and uh, it's important to get every all the kids back uh, vaccinated before the schools open. Otherwise, we might have see uh, uh, outbreaks of measles or pertussis for example. And the other thing concerned is teachers who are in their 60s, they are high risk. So I would say that they have a reason to be somewhat concerned. I think the best thing that the school district can do to uh, minimize the, the risk is to uh, have those teachers who are about 60, maybe they can work from home. He is Martin Kaldorf. He is a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Professor Kaldorf, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate your insight. Thank you so much. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back. Uh, op-ed from uh, Father Tony Teixeira, in, uh, the, who's a, a senior diocesan priest, retired priest in the Joliet dioceses outside of Chicago, used to be my home diocese. The Importance of Human Contact, a really thoughtful little essay he put together. He uh, tells the story, and I've never heard, but he, uh, he writes, some of us may remember the famous story of the orphanage in post-World War II Germany, where the babies on the first floor were dying and the babies on the second floor were thriving, and nobody understood why. One night, while trying to figure out this conundrum, one of the doctors observed the cleaning lady on the first floor. She cleaned immaculately. There was not a germ to be found anywhere, yet the babies were dying. He then went up to the second floor, observed the cleaning lady up there. She wasn't quite so clean, and the reason for this was that in every uh, bassinet, or at every bassinet she came to, she would stop, pick up the baby, hug it, kiss it, put it back to bed. 
The babies on the first floor were dying for lack of physical contact, for lack of love. If you're going to live, you have to be touched. We all do. And yet for now, writes Father Tony, for many of us, especially those who live alone, we are told we can't. I don't believe the need for physical human touch ever goes away, no matter what our age. That's why it seems to me almost inhuman for those dying of this dreadful disease not to be able to have their loved ones around them to touch them. Somehow this should be considered a essential service, quote unquote. We are incarnated beings. We are not pure spirits like the angels. For us, no body, no spirit. They are inseparable. God made us that way. He uh, notes uh, how Christ healed when he went around proclaiming the kingdom of God. He touched. He touched the leper, was touched by the hemorrhaging woman. He touched the little dead girl. He touched the ears of the deaf and the eyes of the blind. And by this wonderful divine power, everything he touched healed. And he uh, compares that in a small way to the, you know, the power of healing moms have when you, the kid comes back with a bruised arm crying, you know, kiss it, make it better kind of thing, right? Uh, he uh, writes this Father Tony, this, the physical healing, we're called to be healers by the power of touch, for we too are the body of Christ in space and time. What he did, we are called to as well. The moment it's safe to do so, and please God, maybe soon, we need to do no less. There are many who are telling us that when this is over, we will no longer be shaking hands or hugging each other. I don't buy that for a minute. It's inhuman. I believe that the divine purpose of this hiatus of no physical contact or touch is to make us hungry and never and to never again take physical contact for granted. Oh, that's an interesting, positive perspective. He goes on to add, when I ask Catholics what they miss most about not being able to go to church right now, they tell me the physical presence of the people and the reception of the body of Christ in the Holy Eucharist. Spiritual communion may be a wonderful theological concept. And we are truly coming into contact with the divine, but somehow it's not the same. Live streaming may be a wonderful technology, but it's not a replacement for the real thing. You know, never take physical contact for granted again. We're called to, you know, the physical as well as, well as the spiritual. That's how we're wired. And um, a virus can't change. That shouldn't. And we shouldn't let uh, social engineers in public office, including in the public health professions, try to make human beings into something we are not. This is Dan Prop. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. I want to continue our discussion about uh, getting the kids back to school. I know that's a preeminent concern to uh, anybody who uh, has school-age children, as well as, frankly, anybody who cares about the future of America and getting children educated. So it should include all of us. But before we get to that and in more depth, I want to get Steve Mnuchin in here because he was on Chris Wallace on Sunday. And uh, I'll tell you what, I will repeat it is not draining the swamp when you have a Goldman Sachs guy as your point person for fiscal policy, including phase four COVID relief. Mnuchin has been wholly unimpressive. This surrender on payroll tax cut, as well as on unemployment insurance to some extent, is painful to watch and even more painful 
to hear explained by Mnuchin. Here's the technical fix, as he describes, paying people more to stay home than to work to uh, unemployment insurance going forward, where they're settling, at least uh, with respect to the proposal uh, to be unveiled today. Now that we want to have the technical correction and we want to have something which pays people about 70 percent wage replacement, which I think is a very fair level. So it's not a fixed number. It's something that pays you a percentage of your wages that are lost. Mm -hmm. And on explaining the uh, about face on the payroll tax cut. In our conversations with Pelosi and Schumer, it was very clear that the Democrats were not going to give us a payroll tax cut. So that's something the president will come back and look at later in the year. But, um, but you got blowback, not just from Democrats, but from some top Republicans as well. There are other Republicans that supported it. And, and let me just say, again, we know we need bipartisan support. We have tax credits that we've put in here to incentivize people to get back to work and in small businesses to hire people. We have the direct payments. And as you know, the direct payments are a much quicker way of effectively giving everybody a tax cut. And it's much quicker than the payroll tax cut. Spoken like a true Keynesian hack to suggest that a government check is the same thing as government restraint on taking from a business, which is what a payroll tax is, are the same things. They're not the same things. One is a transfer payment. One is deepening debt. The other is removing government from the marketplace, even temporarily, as a growth mechanism. Transfer payments, not pro-growth. Removing taxes, which are penalties on work, that's pro-growth. And for him to conflate the two is either wildly ignorant or wildly disingenuous. He can pick. For more on all these matters COVID-related, we're pleased to be joined again by Phil Kirpin, president of the American Commitment and chairman of the Internet Freedom Coalition. Phil, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. All right. I don't know uh, what your view is, but I know you're a free market conservative type of guy on uh, the administration's performance and minutions as its face on this with respect to uh, phase four relief. Catastrophically bad. I mean, look, they haven't even started negotiating with Nancy Pelosi yet. This is just Republicans negotiating with themselves and they've given up almost everything. So, look, I mean, if their position is we want unemployment to be really high. We want to elevate unemployment, keep lots of people out of work ahead of the election. Then this is a great policy. But that's really dumb economics and really dumb politics. And this idea that we're going to extend $300 a week or $200 a week on top of state unemployment benefits, but not 600 as some sort of an initial opening compromise is pretty mind-blowing when you consider that when Democrats controlled the House, Senate, and White House, and it was Nancy Pelosi, Harry Reid, and Barack Obama doing enhanced unemployment benefits in the Obama stimulus bill in 2009. Do you know what they added to unemployment benefits? They added $25 a week. Exactly. And if Mitch McConnell is balking, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to put, you know, make John Cornyn uncomfortable. Well, sorry, Mitch. Do you want me to go to the mat on liability protection for businesses who reopen? Because we should do that. None of these guys are going to win their Senate races if the economy is stalled out. Right. No, no. I mean, I understand. But it's just in terms of like their, you know, how thick is their bubble argument? If they're not seeing it and you have to play power politics within your own party for the betterment of number one, American families and the economy, number two, your own party's electoral chances, then you do it. You can't just concede 
out of the gate, like you said, internally before you even go face down Schumer and Pelosi. Here's a position, too, the president could take. And this is one that's effectively been advocated by Laffer and Moore and Kudlow. I think Kudlow more quietly than the other two, for obvious reasons. You want to do a payroll tax cut, Nancy Pelosi? Fine. Then we won't do anything. We'll take our chances with the entrepreneurial spirit of Americans rather than this $1,200 sugar high for a few weeks in terms of another round of disbursements. I wish they had the guts to do that, frankly. They act like unemployment going back to normal benefits is some sort of catastrophic cliff. I think that if we would just let that come and go and be willing to do that, the benefit of that, the economic benefit of that would be greater than the short-term political pain and the, the, uh, the media blowback and so forth because people will go back to work. Phil, you and I are both old enough to remember way back when, when Nancy Pelosi said unemployment insurance checks are stimulative, she was ridiculed and deservedly so. And now the Republicans seem to be operating from that same position, that same premise. I also remember when she loved the payroll tax cut when Obama did it. Yeah, right. It wasn't that long ago when that was a wonderful idea. Now it's terrible. But you see, all of this requires making arguments. And I don't understand because Trump is usually willing to get into a brawl. But you have to make arguments in order to move people and to cobble together winning coalitions. And they just don't want to make an argument on this. They just want to, you know, write checks. It's very disappointing. And to your point, there's a huge difference between the government writing everyone checks and cutting taxes. We want to create an incentive to create jobs. We want to create an incentive for people to go back to work at those jobs. If you send out checks indiscriminately to everyone, whether they're working or not, you have the opposite effect. It's not as bad as paying people specifically not to work with the enhanced unemployment benefits, but it's still pretty bad because you have a lot of people say, okay, I got this check. I'm going to wait another couple of weeks before I look for a job. So it still has a destimulative effect. So, Phil, CDC released their back-to-school guidelines last week, saying it's imperative to get kids back into the classroom, something that uh, Tony Fauci has said in testimony before the Senate as well. So who is it that's spreading the fear-mongering, or predominantly, do you think, spreading the fear-mongering around this with the so-called experts saying, no, get the kids back into the schools? I think it's the media more than anyone, and it's really been interesting to see because we had basically total consensus that children are not at risk and that we ought to be in school. And really, I mean, the CDC's position has been that schools never should have closed, which I find amazing because I don't know how they can be so oblivious to be like the head health agency in this country and essentially claim, oh, we didn't notice that every single school in the country closed. That probably shouldn't have happened, and, but not tell us that until recently. I think what we're seeing is the most powerful force in America today is negative partisanship. And frankly, when Trump said he was for it, that meant that the Democrats and the media were going to be against it. And everything switched after that event at the White House. It was a bizarre thing to witness because this is a disease that everyone agrees is less dangerous to children than influenza. You have a lower hospitalization rate. You have a lower death rate. And by the way, influenza is very low already. I'm not saying you should be scared and worried about the flu. I'm just saying for context, it's not true to say no children will be hospitalized or killed by this, but the risk is so low. It's lower than influenza. It's lower than driving to school. And so it's lower than risk that we all automatically accept and discount or we wouldn't be able to live our lives. And if we're suddenly going to be so fearful and anxious over tiny, tiny, tiny risks, then we can never reopen a school ever again because there's some risks you're just never going to eliminate. You know, it's just very sad. It's very unfortunate because children who are least at risk of this disease 
are suffering some of the largest burden from these very extended uh, school closures. I, I wish uh, President Trump and every Republican at the federal level would just uh, rinse and repeat exactly what you just said and the way you said it, that the standard you're setting, just understand this. And then, you know, we won't say another word about it. Just understand it. the standard you're setting hysterics, the media, is we will never reopen the school again because of just exactly what you said, influenza more lethal. And of course, we've never closed schools because of influenza outbreaks. But that's the standard you're setting. So if that's the America you want to live in, then vote for the lockdown artists uh, that surround Joe Biden. Uh, That's it. You know, if you want to be beholden to the teachers union, never have in-person learning again and fundamentally alter forever your child's intellectual and social development, then follow what the left is saying. Right. It's that simple. I mean, I think that what we're essentially seeing, the irrational fears and anxieties of parents being exploited by unions that see this as an opportunity for leverage, for essentially a political power play, for a de facto strike in all but name, because uh, they want more money, essentially. I mean, that seems to be the central demand. But they're also making all these other weird, unrelated political demands. And so a lot of these documents from unions say things like defund the charter schools and uh, pass Medicare for all and uh, defund the police and all these sorts of just, just sort of aspirational sure. Sure. Teachers aren't safe until there's no charter schools. It's not safe to be in the classroom until there's no charter schools. He is Phil Kirpin, president of the American Commitment and chairman of the Internet Freedom Coalition. Phil, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Podcast of the show at danproffshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I want to uh, point out uh, the comments in this Future View series of columns that the Wall Street Journal started running. This is uh, getting college students from across the nation to comment on a particularly salient issue. And it's, uh, you know, a half a dozen uh, comments on the, uh, the hot-button issue du jour. Uh, most recently, one of the more recent Future View columns, they uh, asked uh, college kids, both undergrads and in some cases uh, graduate students, about the cancel culture. Cancel culture. I'll give you an example of some of the responses. Uh, the responses are actually um, always well-crafted. Um, that's, I guess, how they make the threshold to get into the journal, even when there's some disagreement. Imagine that, college students respectfully and substantively disagreeing, at least on the pages of the journal it happens. Uh, on cancel culture, Joseph Moranti, who's an economics and finance major at Seton Hall, cancel culture creates an atmosphere that hinders personal growth. Only a culture that allows for redemption and open discourse can encourage the moral progress we all want. If the perfect person whom cancel culture demands really exists, let him cast the first stone. Right. Um, the flip side, uh, Catherine Quinn, Syracuse University, public relations. It's bewildering that prominent figures from YouTube stars and children's book authors to corporate executives are upset when the public disagrees loudly with their bigoted and prejudice, prejudicial st- sentiments. How can you voice your problematic thoughts in the public arena, then be angry when you face a public trial and social death? Isn't that the price that comes with a platform? When your livelihood depends on the public, they have a right to determine your success. To be canceled is to be held accountable for your actions and finally face the consequences. Freedom of speech doesn't grant freedom from repercussions. 
Well, there's uh, so much that's problematic with uh, her comment, but uh, at least it's on point. And if you could have uh, the undergrad from Seton Hall and the undergrad from Syracuse actually have this kind of discussion in an open forum on college, on a college campus, then perhaps you'd be making some progress here. The problem, it seems to me, is you can't have professors have that or administrators have that conversation on a college campus. And uh, case in point, Joshua Katz, who we profiled uh, the other week, a classics professor at Princeton who uh, was almost canceled at Princeton for agreeing in part and disagreeing in part with a letter signed by many, many dozens of his colleagues, the professor at, at Princeton, that uh, you know, demanded all sorts of uh, social justice, uh, leftist, uh, count-by-race-type programs on campus to uh, address, you know, the typical things, you, the phraseology you've heard, systemic racism on campus and white privilege and so on and so forth. The one that he disagreed most vociferously against, Professor Katz, the idea that they were going to create or should create some star chamber of academics on campus to review the research of all the professors to make sure there was no tinge of racism in anything that they researched or were planning to research. And, uh, of course, Professor Katz arguing the obvious confiscatory effect that would have on free thought and research on campus. You know, one of the arguably best colleges in the world, most prestigious colleges in the world. And this is what's happening. Well, he, he writes in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend. Hey, 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 I'm it's uh, I'm happy to report that Princeton's leadership has done the right thing. And I'm not under investigation for thought crimes against humanity. Nevertheless, the president of Princeton, Christoph Eisgruber, told the student newspaper that Professor Katz had violated his obligation to exercise free speech responsibly for respectfully disagreeing in part and agreeing in part with his colleagues per the contents of the letter they had written to the president and the administration. It's a remarkable story, telling one. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Sam Abrams. He's a professor of politics at Sarah Lawrence College, visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. And uh, uh, he uh, has a, a good piece at realclearpolicy.com about American college students being more reasonable than we think. And uh, the students profiled in the future view columns over the last several weeks speak to what Sam Abrams is saying. What about the professorate, though? That's <laughs> I, I don't know if you could say the same thing about the professors. Could you, Sam? Sadly, no. Uh, you know, it's funny. The, the student from Seton Hall is actually far more normal and far more common than widely believed. Uh, you know, over the last couple of years since uh, I was in, you know, people attempted to cancel me in a very similar way to what happened at Princeton. Uh, students have been flocking uh, to me. I get dozens of emails every week, and I see and I hear this from many, many uh, right of center professors as well, where students are saying, "We want to hear the other ideas. We want to know what's going on." And it, it's one thing to have that anecdotal evidence. It's one thing to have my classes oversubscribed. It's really terrific to, to speak uh, around the country or pre-COVID speak around the country and meet students everywhere. But when you have empirics, which is what's written up in Real Clear Policy, what's very clear is students want. To hear other ideas. They don't want to live in an echo chamber. They don't like the monoculture that's sort of thrust upon them. And to your question, the problem are or is are the professors and the administrators. These students come in, they're eager to hear ideas, 
they do appreciate diversity. They do appreciate difference. They want to debate. They want to have that dialogue. But uh, unfortunately, far too often, the administrators get their hands on them. They come in. They're told, here's what to think. Here's how to think. If you don't think this, you're evil. There'll be social consequences uh, accordingly. And then uh, for too many professors, as we saw in Princeton, or in my case, Sarah Lawrence, back that up. And uh, that's a huge problem and a failure of the professor. Uh, you uh, mentioned this uh, Higher Education Research Institute survey, which finds that, um, for example, 67 percent of the students who responded uh, uh, are, are open to having their views challenged. And they believe that uh, that was an asset of theirs, that their openness to having their views challenged is something that makes them, you know, uh, a, a better person, a, a more intellectually interesting person, a more thoughtful person. And they're right. Um, maybe part of it is is convincing people who think they're in the minority because they don't see that view reflected in the professorate or the administration, that their views are actually the majority. And maybe they'd be more a little a little bit more confident about expressing them and pushing them on the adults on campus, so to speak. No, I, I agree with that. I, I think that there is this uh, I don't love the term silent majority, but there is this silent majority of reasonableness on college campuses. But there's a fear. And it's this pervasive administrative machine that hovers over everything, classrooms, dormitories, social spaces. We saw this at Yale, uh, very, very pronounced. And the students are afraid to do it. One of the reasons I'm very comfortable putting myself out there is that we can be role models as professors. And as soon as as students see faculty step up and say, you have a right to ask these questions, you have a right to disagree, and in fact, you should disagree, students become more and more emboldened. And you can see that at a place like Sarah Lawrence. It's a small sample, of course. But as we have more and more students, faculty doing it, more and more students will react to it. It is an uphill battle. But again, the, the students are right about this. Uh, it's really this administrative class that is, has its uh, tentacles, for lack of a better word, in every facet of, of uh, higher education life. And the, the reason I've been writing so much about it is I would love your listeners in Chicago and, and nationwide to realize this is an issue. We need to demand more. Let the faculty teach uh, and, and let you know, live up to our values, which is actually viewpoint diversity. There's uh, too many faculty are forgetting that. When we come back with Cheryl Lawrence, Professor Sam Abrams, I want to get to another point you uh, mentioned from this uh, survey about uh, students, and that is how uh, Gen Z is seeing a narrowing of ideological identification between left and right as compared to recent generations. More with politics professor at Cheryl Lawrence College, Sam Abrams. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. We're back with uh, politics professor at Sarah Lawrence College, Sam Abrams. And Sam, I want to get to another point you made in uh, the survey results you memorialized in your piece at RealClearPolicy.com. The ideological divide between Gen Z, uh, between, you know, how many, what percentage are left of center, characterize themselves left of center, what percentage characterize them as right of center, and which, uh, what percentage doesn't characterize them at all, characterize themselves at all. It's actually much, much narrower than the academicians uh, on campus. And so part of that, at, at some point, it seems to me, p- perhaps some good news, silver lining, 
is you're going to have to serve the marketplace or the or you will be served by the marketplace. And uh, if you are going to continue to have, you know, left wing viewpoints uh, run at a nine to one clip in all these major areas of study, then you're going to lose students to other colleges where there is more representation of of diversity along intellectual lines. Uh, consistent with what the the the, uh, the 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 diversity of of viewpoints is among the students. Exactly. Uh, another thing to mention is that this uh, administrative class and even faculty who are left of center here, this did not happen overnight. This is something that's been a movement that's been growing very quietly. Uh, it's very clear if you're in higher ed that it's been developing, but it's occurred over the course of at least a decade, if not two decades, gradually building, gradually adding centers, gradually adding more and more subfields to, to promote a, a certain set of viewpoints that may not be open or, or willing to have that sort of dialogue and discourse. Uh, so, you know, to, to push back, it's a hard pushback already, and it's only been a few years. This may take, uh, you know, five to ten years to, to recenter and to reorient and to, to really achieve our, our goals of real diversity and to have people who have conservative ideas and non-extreme progressive ideas feel comfortable. It, it's going to be a slow fight, but uh, I, I also think that it's been a very strong pushback already. And uh, if you look at social media and you look at college students around the country, at least the ones I speak to, and, and they're significant, they, uh, they, they don't like it. They are pushing back. But again, it's not something that's going to happen in six months to a year. This is going to be a very slow thing. The marketplace, I agree with you, you know, will correct this. But again, it may take you know, a couple of years. It's not going to happen you know, within a year or two. Uh, do you think that uh, the uh, economics of universities will drive change maybe faster than we could imagine the economics, not just uh, because of COVID and the shutdowns and the argument over whether or not distance learning should include a tuition rebate, but the economics even before that for a lot of mid-sized universities, there was a good Richard Vetter piece in Forbes last week about uh, universities in Ohio that are not Ohio State, but small, smaller ones, Mac schools like Ohio U that uh, could be, uh, could be gone in a few years because of the economic realities that they're facing. They don't have 30, 40 billion dollar endowments and uh, they've misspent and misprioritized. Mm -hmm. And uh, that combined with covid and combined with a college environment that is perceived to be very hostile to somebody who is not, you know, running around on uh, the streets of some major city right now. uh, Means that uh, a lot of colleges aren't going to be here and maybe that scares some colleges straight. I think it does, and, and actually I agree with his piece completely. Uh, I think a lot of colleges were in trouble. I think COVID is now going to accelerate this. As, as we have some economic belt tightening to do, a, a lot of families, a lot of students are going to say, do we need to be going into debt right now? Do we need to be taking on this burden? Are we comfortable spending this to, and, and, and you know, continuing this, uh, allowing this process to occur? Uh, and, and, you know, when we're not getting anything out of it, our parents and families are going to send their kids to the school and say, I'm comfortable sending sixty to $70,000 to have them indoctrinated but not walk away with critical thinking skills, certain life skills, and certain, you know, technical skills that we need uh, in the marketplace today. So I, I would even argue COVID has set up what we're going to see. I think we're going to see a significant number of colleges and universities decline uh, and disappear. Uh, and one thing to note is even those schools that have those $40 billion endowments, like, like Harvard, uh, if you read the, their newspaper all the time, they are in trouble, even with that endowment, because they can't touch most of their endowment. Mm-hmm. They're running deficits still. Uh, so they're, they're, you know, the marketplace may even be accelerated uh, thanks to COVID and this. And uh, this may not be a bad thing. Uh, you know, there's been a t- too much bloat in higher ed. There, there's been too much uh, expansion of the administrative state in higher ed. 
And uh, this may help correct for it. This actually may, again, bring the market forces uh, into, the, into this much more quickly. He is Samuel Abrams, professor of politics at Sarah Lawrence College, visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Professor Abrams, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. In the uh, first hour, at the top of the show, we spoke with FirstThings.com's Rusty Reno, and uh, in part, we tackled some of the responses you're seeing to the violence in the streets of America's cities. The responses you're getting from the elected officials in charge, mayors mainly. Uh, Lori Lightfoot, mayor of Chicago, triple threat. She was on with uh, Jake Tapper over the weekend on State of the Union on CNN. And uh, I mean, the just sort of remarkable commentary. Uh, as I mentioned last week, this is not inconsistent with what you're hearing from Ted Wheeler in Portland, Jenny Durkin in Seattle. Uh, Kaiser Warren Wilhelm in New York City and others, uh, they may be even more aggressive in talking about throwing out federal support where Lori Lightfoot is sort of welcoming welcoming it in a qualified way. But just still the, the, the line drawing, the sense of omnipotence and, of course, as we talked about with Rusty Reno, the misdirections play. Let's start with the omnipotence. You know, we're going to allow federal law enforcement to come to Chicago as if. They need Lori Lightfoot's uh, acquiescence, and they don't. But uh, they better not cross the bright lines I draw. We will not allow federal troops in our city. We will not tolerate unnamed agents taking people off the street, violating their rights, um, and holding them in custody. That's not happening here in Chicago. So I've drawn a very, very bright line. I've made that very clear to every federal authority um, that I've spoken with, and they understand that if they cross that line, we will not hesitate to use every tool at our disposal to stop troops uh, and unwanted agents in our city. Yeah, an interested interviewer, Jake Tapper, may have followed up on that question and said, uh, every tool uh, at your disposal to stop federal troops or federal law enforcement, by what authority? What tools? Be specific. What are you going to do? What are you going to do if ATF or ICE uh, or the FBI or DEA does something you don't like, even if it's in conjunction with the Chicago Police Department, another enterprise you don't like? Isn't that right? So first, she's going to use the powers at her disposal that she believes she has to uh, lord over federal law enforcement officials. And then she's going to turn her sights on Chicago police to use the tools at her disposal to impose on Chicago police the sort of reforms, quote unquote, 
that someone who despises the police, someone who, before she was mayor, characterized the Chicago police as systemically racist, would impose. Listen to her reaction to a letter that was sent to President Trump by Chicago FOP boss John Cantanzara about the need for federal law enforcement to come in because the mayor is failing to keep the peace. Obviously, Jake Tapper even noted murders up 50 percent, shootings up 50 percent. It's not going so well. But no, no, that's not the problem. The president of the Chicago Fraternal Order of Police disagrees with you. He says they need federal help. Quote, Mayor Lightfoot has proved to be a complete failure who is either unwilling or unable to maintain law and order here. These politicians are failing the good men and women of this city and the police department. Uh, What's your response to that? Um, There's no polite response to that. So I'll just say this. We're in the middle of contract negotiations with the FOP. We know he knows that we're going to have a reckoning with them that imposes accountability measures that they adamantly resist. So he's pandering to the crowd. He is completely out of touch with reality. He wants to hold on to a status quo that has failed everyone, including his members. We're not having that. So I expect to hear more nonsensical things from him. He's pandering to the crowd. She isn't. Jawboning federal law enforcement, jawboning Chicago police, uh, holding on to a status quo that's failed everyone. Isn't that the definition of Chicago city government for 100 years? And she's just a continuation of the same approach, the scapegoating politics, the identity race hustle, the same thing. And uh, the answer to the question of year over year, 50 percent spike in shootings and murders. That's on your watch. What's the problem? Now it's time for the misdirection play. The fact of the matter is. Our gun problem is related to the fact that we have too many illegal guns on our street, 60% of which, 60% of which come from states outside of Illinois. We are being inundated with guns from states that have virtually no gun control, no background checks, no ban on assault weapons. That is hurting cities like Chicago. Yeah, that's the issue. Um, Law-abiding gun owners having guns is the issue. Hmm. Of course, this is the same rap. Again, you've been hearing from big city mayors forever. This is Mike Bloomberg's uh, every town uh, gambit. This is uh, the stock and trade of big city Dem socialist politicians in terms of their explanation for why they are failing to provide for the physical security of their constituents in predominantly minority neighborhoods in Seattle. Seattle Police Department missive to business owners and or residents. Please know the Seattle Police Department is committed to addressing life incidents, life safety incidents and calls for service. Please also know that the city council ordinance, uh, crowd control ordinance goes into effect this weekend. This ordinance bans Seattle police officers, uh, the use of less lethal tools including pepper spray that is commonly used to disperse crowds that have turned violent. Simply put, the legislation gives officers no ability to safely intercede to preserve property in the midst of a large violent crowd. It's important to bring to your attention that yesterday I sent the council a letter ensuring them that as chief of police, I've done my due diligence of informing them numerous times of the foreseeable impact of this ordinance on upcoming events. Carmen Best, the chief of police, who was sort of kind of, you know, and I, I understand out of duty, running interference for the mayor there, Jenny Durkin, during the autonomous zone 
uprising and now no ability to use less lethal force to disperse violent crime. So basically, the Seattle Police Department is sending letters to businesses saying we can't enforce the law. You're on your own and to residents. We can't enforce the law. You're on your own. The problem is federal law enforcement. The problem is local law enforcement. The problem is guns generally. No distinction between those in the hands of criminals and those in the hands of law abiding. This is the playbook. And uh, this is an opportunity for President Trump and candidates up and down the line to say, this is what they want, the big city mayors. Is that what you want? Is that what you want coming to the suburbs, to the exurbs, to rural communities with uh, Mark, cultural Marxists and governor's mansions, as well as in city halls? This is Dan Proff. The more you'll know, this is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the program. Uh, in the first hour in our conversation with Rusty Reno, we folded in uh, some commentary from Bob Woodson, founder of the Woodson Center, who appeared on uh, Tucker Carlson's show on Friday night talking about uh, the rhetorical concern for the poor expressed by big city mayors that actually doesn't translate in practice. And that, uh, according to Bob, once there is a more of an awakening among poor black residents of big cities, you're going to see a paradigm shift that they really are our pathway to renewal of our big cities and renewal of this country. Woodson also had uh, something else to say about uh, what the left is doing. What low-income blacks are facing is not bigotry or institutional racism. It is systematic neglect and abandonment and treasonous behavior. Bigotry is not their biggest challenge. It's treason. And what black America is being uh, stolen is their history of how they resisted and overcame oppression, and that's being wiped away. Chicago used to be the the Black Wall Street in segregation. In 1929, there were 731 black-owned businesses. There were 100 million in real estate assets at a time when, when segregation was the law. And so you can't blame institutional racism or systematic racism or, or legacy of slavery for the failures. This has occurred precisely uh, as the civil rights leaders became leaders of these cities. And uh, to Woodson's point, that history has to be erased as well as uh, the history of the Confederacy and so forth. But that history has to be erased, what Bob Woodson is talking about, because you have to remove any history that suggests that black Americans can do for themselves and, in fact, have done for themselves in the worst of times, as Bob Woodson is wont to say. When white people were at their worst, black people were at their best in terms of their resilience and accomplishment, what they overcame. That's what he's describing. And so the left tries to buy you off, as Lori Lightfoot did. Just she, She's sort of the current worst example of a lot of bad examples, you know, by removing a Columbus statue from a park. And even on that, you know, again, the history has to be rewritten, of course, to make this a big thing, right, uh, this, uh, this abuser of indigenous populations. Well, the Knights of Columbus remind people of the history of Columbus. And in point of fact, Christopher Columbus received the Ku Klux Klan's hatred, eager to defame this Catholic non-Anglo explorer celebrated by immigrants. The Klan targeted anything that honored him. In Oregon, for example, the Klan fought to get rid of Columbus Day. 
In places such as Richmond, Virginia and Easton, Pennsylvania, the Klan nearly succeeded in blocking the erection of statues of Columbus in the first place. Elsewhere, Klansmen disrupted Columbus Day celebrations, such as with a cross burning uh, in another community in Pennsylvania. The uh, KKK publications called Columbus Day a, pe- a papal fraud. And uh, by contrast, the Knights insisted that U.S. citizens embrace of Columbus and the immigrants he represented enriched rather than threatened American identity because the Klan hated Catholics just as they hated blacks, hated Columbus and anything that immigrants to this country celebrated just as much as they hated and wanted to oppress black Americans. And there you go. There's some more history for you. Educate a friend, why don't you? It's needed in these times. This is Dan Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. Thank you for joining us. And uh, this is the perfect time to uh, bring back our old friend uh, George Will because you've got... uh, uh, presidential election in the offing, and you've got uh, opening day now behind us, uh, the most uh, odd opening day of my lifetime. I suspect probably his lifetime and everybody's lifetime as well. Uh, most notably, not with Tony Fauci throwing out the first pitch at the Nats opener, but with these cardboard cutouts of fans in the stands, like uh, a Steve Martin, Charles Grodin party and Lonely Guy. That was bizarre. Um Weird. Uh, I I guess it's a way to get fan engagement, but um, I don't know. It just uh, it's it seems like life after people sort of event. But for uh, and 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 by the way, of course, for those of you who don't know, you should. George Will, in addition to being a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, commentator for his commentaries, uh, the author and a huge baseball fan, the author of the great book Men at Work, which profiled among others my favorite hitter of all time even though I'm a diehard Sox fan, and that's Tony Gwynn. George Will, a columnist for The Washington Post, commentator for NBC News and MSNBC, Pulitzer Prize for commentary, as I mentioned, 1977. Well, seems like just a few years ago. George Will, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. I'm glad to be with you. All right, I'm, I'm working through your opening day quiz. I'm, I'm not, I don't think I'm doing too bad, but I, I definitely have some I don't knows here that I'm guessing at, so I'll let you know my score um, but the, the, the George Will opening day quiz is always fun as well. But what what about the these cardboard cutouts? Uh, just the whole opening day feel around baseball in 2020. Well, cardboard cutouts won't cut it, and neither will the piped-in crowd music. Yeah, <laughs> like it's crowd a sitcom. Music. Well, exactly. I mean, I was watching the Mets Yankee game the other day, and there was a an episode where they had the crowd booing something, which, I mean, it actually fit. The crowd would have booed at this point. But who are they kidding? <laughs> I mean, just as soon see it as it's being experienced uh, in dead silence. And uh, at least that's unique. And it's, I'm just sort of opposed to fakery on principle. Yeah, and I, and I don't think it's like serves the players. I don't think it gives them a feel like fans are in the stands and it, you know, jumps their energy levels or testosterone levels anymore to have cardboard cutouts and, uh, and you know, the equivalent of laugh tracks. Precisely. Uh, and so what, what, just what, one other th- topic, uh, one other note on baseball, pretty resistant to uh, get into politics, tried to stay away from that. Most people 
don't know Rob Manfred's name the way they know Roger Goodell's name, for example. It's low profile. I thought that was good. But now from the, the kneeling before the national anthem at the Nats opener to uh, discussions of social justice messaging on batting helmets, it seems like uh, baseball is being pulled in. Is that bad news for the sport? Well, I think a third to a half, this is just guessing, but my guess is a third to the half of the baseball audience goes to a ball game to get away from stuff like this. It's a pastime. It is escaping from the tedious daily bombardment of opinions and politics and distress and turmoil in America. So it, it seems to me a third to a half of the baseball audience goes to the ballpark and they see a political endorsement. That's what this is, of a political position on the bases and on the uniforms. Uh, it's happening in basketball. It's happening in football. And I think people just dislike being preached at and dislike being told there is an orthodoxy to which all right-thinking, good, decent people subscribe. And uh, so, so I think the sports are playing a little bit with fire as they try and keep, keep up with the uh, mood of the moment. All right. Now uh, on to uh, politics and the presidential race. Uh, you uh, did an interview last week with the, um, I think it was the, edit- was it the editorial page editor of the Washington Post. I believe so. You, uh, she, she asked you about uh, your choice in 2020 and your uh, making personal history in 2020, as you explained. Who, who do you plan to vote for in November? Biden. Have you voted for a Democrat before? Never. First time you've ever voted for a Democrat for president. That's right. And you explained what kind of president you thought Biden would be. I think he'll be an adequate president, but then I'm much less. Uh, Donald Trump has cured me of presidential fastidiousness. Uh, I, Everyone looks good now. Uh, and this, I mean, Joe Biden is an amiable, decent man, 36 years in the Senate, 34 of them on the Foreign Relations Committee. We tend to forget that foreign relations is where the presidential power is uh, largest and presidential discretion is rightly uh, at its broadest. So all this matters. I think he has a taste for talented people to have around him. So it'll be a distinct improvement. That's a low bar, but uh, worth saying. I disagree with you about this presidential race, but I have tremendous respect for you. You've always uh, enjoyed your work. And so I just want to get a a deeper understanding of this here. I recall uh, one of your great books, Restoration, uh, central to that was term limits. So is for example, Joe Biden serving 34 years in the Senate. In an, in an ideal George Will world, he would have never had the opportunity to serve that long in the Senate. And is longevity the nece- necessarily the same thing as productivity? That's true. Neither would my friend Mitch McConnell still be there. Right. I came to my belief in term limits, understanding that there is a cost to term limits. That is, there's a cost to the institutional memory of the Senate and the House. There is indeed a certain seasoning that is uh, important and not negligible, uh, a kind of experience that uh, you can tap into. I just came to the conclusion back when I wrote that in 1994 that the benefits outweighed the very real defects of term limits. I wish there were term limits. I still do. There's not going to be because the Supreme Court ruled uh, that five to four with Kennedy, Justice Kennedy again casting this crucial vote that this is a, would require a constitutional amendment, and that will not happen. Therefore, uh, what we do is we try and take the advantage that uh, can be found in, in uh, 
long experience in politics, and I do think there are advantages, and I do think that Joe Biden has them, particularly because he was notably collegial in the Senate. Remember, he got in trouble in one of the Democratic debates when he said that he had been able to work across the, the lines with very conservative uh, Southerners. Uh, when he came there, there were Southern segregationists still in power in the Senate, and uh, he got in trouble for referring to his experience of collegial cooperation. I think that happens to be a virtue, usually and certainly uh, today. But, uh, but I mean, with respect to a Biden presidency in 2020, as opposed to his time in the Senate, which is a more collegial body than certainly our politics at the presidential level is today, I mean, don't you fear him being surrounded by Obama staffers advancing Bernie Sanders policies at, in, in the, you know, in real time here as we stand here today? No, I don't. First of all, it seems to me very dangerous to get into the mental set that says we have a two-party system. There's going to be a regular oscillation between the two parties. And when one of these parties comes in, it's a disaster for the nation. I just don't think that's historically wise. I don't think it's accurate. But beyond that, Joe Biden clinched the 2020 Democratic nomination earlier than it had been clinched in the last two heavily contested episodes, Obama against Clinton in 2008, Clinton against Bernie Sanders in 2016. Biden clinched this against people who advocated things he refused to advocate. He's not for abolishing ICE. He's not for packing the Supreme Court. He's not endorsed Medicare for all. He won emphatically by not pandering uh, to some of these wilder ideas of the Democratic left. Although in a, in a recent interview with an activist named Addie Barkin, he was very open minded about the idea of, uh, uh, if not defunding police, re- uh, formally redirecting police resources away from police to what the defunders are promoting, things like social workers and, and those sorts of things. At this point, after a, a hotly contested primary season, uh, it is normal for the winner to make some gestures to those he has vanquished in the nominating contest. And one way you do that is you say you are open to, you will think about, you will consider, let's study this, that, and the other thing. But remember this also, the funding of the, the vast number of local police forces in the United States is none of the president's business. Right. The president is not going to have much to say about that. People can make these grand statements about what presidents ought to do, but we still do have, not as much as we used to, but we still do have a constitutional balance that assigns police powers, and I mean all sorts of police powers, health, education, etc., to the states, and that has not changed. When we come back with uh, George Will, let's uh, have a little bit of discussion about presidential tone. President Trump's generally okay, but also Vice President Biden's when it comes to issues of law and order. More to, more with uh, George Will. Hey, hey, hey. Listen to the podcast of the show at danproftshow.com.
We're back with Washington Post columnist and NBC and MSNBC contributor George Will. And uh, let's talk about presidential tone for a minute, but uh, specific to an issue. Uh, While policing uh, law and order at the state and local level is primarily a state and local level issue, the president can set important tone when it comes to the rule of law. And I, I wonder if you disagree with the posture that Trump has taken with respect to the rule of law in cities that are currently beset by civil unrest, including violence. Uh, let's separate. Let's make a distinction here. What the mayor of Seattle uh, tolerated in Seattle was absurd right. and dangerous, and none of again none of Washington's business. The people of the Seattle can take care of that and can judge their mayor and his performance of his duties accordingly. In Portland, when uh, the, the president cited a threat to, and the, the Secretary of uh, Homeland Security cited the threat to federal property, that raises a different issue. Mm-hmm. I do think, even with that more legitimate issue raised, the idea of sending in uh, people with insufficient identification on their signia and unmarked cars sweeping people off the street, that is not something that's acceptable in the United States under any president. And and, uh, and just thinking about the issues that will, in part, uh, inform the decisions people make. I mean, again, with respect to Trump, um, the, I know there's some disagreements on substantive disagreements on policy. There's also just a general distaste for personality. I understand both. But when it comes to decisions that will last for multiple presidencies, like the appointment of Supreme Court justices, which was an argument made in 2016 as well, of course, Would you say that Trump exceeded your expectations with the nominations of Gorsuch and Kavanaugh? Are there areas where you say Trump has done better than I thought he would do and he's actually done things consistent with uh, the idea of conservative, uh, uh, a conservative philosophy? With regarding regarding judges, and you're quite right, that was a very important issue in the 2016 campaign. I believe if Scalia had not died in February and Mitch McConnell had not instantly said they would hold that seat open, I don't think Mr. Trump would have been elected because in one respected exit poll, one in five voters said that the composition of the Supreme Court was an important factor in their voting decision and a majority of those voted Republican. That said, the following also must be said. People trusted Donald Trump to exercise his judgment about judges because he promised not to exercise his judgment. He promised to do what any Republican president would have done, which was look to guidance from the Federalist Society and similar uh, institutions to provide the short list any Republican president, and Lord, we had, what, 18 people on the stage at the beginning of the 2016 nomination scramble. Any one of those 18 would have considered Gorsuch and Kavanaugh on their very short list. Right. But uh, but in in uh, January of 2021, uh, if Biden is the president of the United States, he's not going to be consulting the Federalist Society. So with the prospect of Souter and Ginsburg, who knows? But, you know, more likely than not, you're going to at least have one vacancy, if not two or more. Who knows? Um, Don't you prefer somebody working off the Federalist Society uh, uh, list of qualified jurists as opposed to Joe Biden? Absolutely. I just am not uh, don't happen to be a single issue voter. Mm -hmm. I would prefer that. 
but uh, when I when I look at the condition of the country, the standing of the country abroad, the tone of American life, I'm not willing to say I'll sacrifice absolutely everything to get another Federalist Society nominee. I am sitting here in Washington wearing my Federalist Society necktie. I take <laughs> the Federalist Society really seriously. Uh, I'm a tremendous fan of it. I'm a member of it. But uh, there are other considerations involved. Well, and, and, and go through some of those other considerations, because is there a real divide between President Trump and Joe Biden, where Biden uh, is the more responsible party on, you know, a range of fiscal policies or border security measures? Uh, you know, what are the areas that put Biden over the top for you, I guess, is what I'm trying to drive at. The first and most important is uh, to stop the cascade of lies and name-calling and, and I was going to say adolescent behavior by Mr. Trump. It's really sort of sixth-grade playground behavior. There's a constant childishness, uh, all of which was summed up by the, the calamity in Lafayette Square the other day, uh, at the, back in June, when uh, the president turned the American military into a prop for one of his campaign uh, stunts. Uh, that's a difference. Uh, with regard to the economy, under Donald Trump, before the pandemic set in, we were running a trillion dollar deficit at full employment and at 2% growth. The idea that, that the, the Republican Party any longer stands for fiscal rectitude does not stand up to the basic arithmetic that's been produced. Oh, no, I agree with that. But but the, the question is, uh, if, if that's a problem in both parties, then uh, you want to press down on that issue with Democrats in control of both chambers, or I should say both branches, the uh, ostensibly both Congress and and the presidency. I mean, uh, you know, Barack Obama did six trillion dollars in 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 a recovery in terms of additional uh, additional debt. And obviously, with the pandemic, Trump's going to exceed that. So I, I can see the point, Republicans and Democrats. I just don't concede the point that Democrat socialist base uh, cons- base uh, party leaders in both the House and the Senate, combined with whoever's around Joe Biden, is going to be any better. In fact, it would seem likely that it would be a lot worse when they're proposing things like the Green New Deal. Yes, the Biden presidency, uh, with for two years. Democratic control of both houses of Congress exceeds what public opinion will tolerate in the more moderate part of our country, they will be punished. Look what happened to the Democrats after controlling both houses of Congress in 2009 and 10, what happened in the 2010 elections. Look what happened. Go all the way back to the lopsided Democratic majorities after the anti-Goldwater landslide when they could work their will as they wanted in 1965 and 1966, they not only suffered serious setbacks in uh, in, uh, 20, in 1966, they lost five, I believe, five of the next six presidential elections. Our politics has a way of adjusting and going back and forth. So the idea that this election or any election is the, the final determinant of the fate of the nation is unhistorical and leads to a kind of hysteria in politics that clouds our judgment. 
He is George Will. He is a columnist for The Washington Post, commentator for NBC News and MSNBC, Pulitzer Prize winner in commentary from 1977, huge baseball fan, even, I guess, in 2020, where baseball doesn't <laughs> look or feel like what it normally does. And uh, as always, uh, say hello to your son, Jeff, for me. Uh, Jeff and I went to Northwestern together, and he's a great guy. I was glad to know him while we were undergrads many years ago now. But uh, hope everybody in your family is doing well and appreciate your time. I appreciate it, too. Stay safe. Thanks, sir. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Uh, One thing my show prides itself on is institutional memory. It's something that's so lacking in the press corps, generally speaking institutional memory, context and consequence to information. So uh, before we get to what uh, Jerry Nadler had to say about Antifa, let's uh, take a uh, relatively brief stroll down memory lane and uh, recall the good work of James O'Keefe and his team at Project Veritas infiltrating Antifa in Portland. And uh, what they learned, as you can see and hear for yourself, through the undercover reporting on Antifa a meeting, an organizational meeting, as we'll talk uh, about uh, a little bit uh, coming up, actually, with Jim Carafano, the organized crime element to Antifa. Don't be that f***ing guy with the goddamn spiked brass knuckles getting photos taken of you. Police are going to be like, perfect, we can prosecute these f***ers. Look how violent they are. Right? Not that we're not, but we need Yeah, it's not that you shouldn't use the spiked brass knuckles, just don't get caught being uh, photographed with them Uh, and then even more explicit calls to violence as a sort of an organizational ethos. How violent is Antifa or RCA in particular? Practice things like an eye gouge. It takes very little uh, pressure to injure someone's eyes. They do not hesitate to either push back or incite some kind of violence. In our classes and in our meetings, before we do uh, any sort of demonstration or black block, you know, we talk about weapons detail and what we carry and what we should have. What is black block? Well, this is black block right now. The term is used to uh, a tactic in which individuals conceal their identity to look uniform so, so that no one can be identified in an act of a crime. With RCA, it seems much more structured, almost like a company or like a business. So, you know, I feel like there is some type of outside funding influence or resources being used. Consider, like, destroying your enemy, not, like, delivering a really awesome right hand, right eye, left eye blow, you know. Um, it's not boxing, it's not kickboxing, it's, like, destroying your enemy. Yeah, and um, what that, uh, that uh, former Antifa that was being interviewed by one of O'Keefe's reporters was saying is that this is a criminal enterprise, organized crime, a la the mafia. And so uh, what to do about it and how to understand it? Well, Jerry Nadler says it doesn't even exist. So what you heard is a myth. 
that's uh, created uh, in some uh, right-wing super PAC in D.C., according to Nadler, caught on the streets of Washington, asked about Antifa and the violence on the streets of Portland and elsewhere. It is true. There's violence across the whole country. Do you disavow the violence from Antifa? That's happening in Portland right now? There's that's, riots? That's, that's a myth that's being spread only in Washington, D.C. About Antifa in Portland? Yes. It's Sir, there's, there's videos everywhere online. There's fires and riots. There's th- they're throwing fireworks at uh, federal officers. DHS is there. Look online. It gets crazy, Mr. Nadler. And he waddles over to his car and, you know, is sped away. Um, that That's not just a joke like, oh, he's denying reality. It's actually an old Soviet tactic. Uh, if you've ever read Whitaker Chambers, and if you haven't, you should, not just Witness, which is one of the most important novels of the 20th century, but also his uh, offering Cold Friday. There's a passage about uh, the communists and how they operate. Uh, just let me just read this to you. Bishop O'Gara was the bishop of a province in the far west of China, where it was said by those who were almost always wrong about the communists, but always confidently vocal. The communists would never come because the province was so wild and bandit ridden that even Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek had never ventured there in force. One day, the bishop was handed a note from the sister who ran the hospital. It contained three words. They are here. They might stand for a legend of the age. After a short period of official correctness while they consolidated their power, the communists imprisoned Bishop O'Gara and brainwashed him for about two years. At last, they carried him half across China and passed him through the barrier at Hong Kong because they believed the bishop, a man in his 60s, was dying, as indeed he was at the time, and it suited their purpose to have him die in the hands of others. Uh, after his uh, time in release, uh, O'Gara tried to tell public groups what communism had done to him and his life, the urgent danger that he felt it posed to the lives of his listeners, and what he feared it might presently do to them, after one such talk, an intelligent, authoritative woman who Bishop O'Gara took to be an educator came up to him. Bishop, she said, that simply isn't true. The brainwashing. Uh, this is at a time where you didn't have the sort of the documentation, the video or audio evidence that you have now. And yet Jerry Nadler is engaged in the same type of Soviet communist denial of reality. It is uh, not something just to be laughed off. Uh, it's something to be considered in terms of approach by uh, ideological Marxists, as Jerry Nadler is, and maybe didn't start out that way, but uh, you come to it based on your desire to hold power, which is the overwhelming desire of most of these Marxist politicians in D.C. that may not have started out that way, but are fully willing to adopt it and everything that comes along with it in order to maintain their cushy sinecure. That's how it comes. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show we're uh, pleased to be joined now by lieutenant colonel jim carafano vice president of the Catherine and shelby cullum davis institute for international studies at the heritage foundation and author of books including Wiki at War and Private Sector Public Wars. Jim, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Let's start with this. Um, sort of below the fold, but I've been reading some suggestions from other foreign policy experts like yourself that uh, as the world is consumed with combating COVID and uh, uh, trying to rein in China, particularly in the West, uh, something that's maybe happening is uh, Islamic terrorist organizations reconstituting themselves in North Africa and the Middle East. 
Uh, do you uh, believe that is happening? And, and if so, how much of a national security threat does, does that pose? Are we are we uh, asleep at the switch again with respect to those organizations? Well, it, it's always been ongoing to some degree, right? And, and you had to expect this, that particularly after the caliphate was dissolved, that some of those guys weren't going to go home. They were going to go out to other places, set up new networks and, and, and get going again. I mean, this goes back to, you know, people still talk about the president's Muslim ban, which, of course, there never was a Muslim ban. No country was ever designated because it's a religious affiliation. There's literally hundreds of countries around the world with Muslims. We, the only countries that we banned, some of which, of course, had very little Muslims, um, were countries where we were worried about the outflow of, of uh, fighters going to those countries and then potentially coming to the United States. And we, we actually did a, we've done a very, very good job effectively blocking that. So the, they're, they're there, there are going activities, there's been activities in North Africa. Having said that, the U.S. military is actually looking to ratchet down its counterterrorism operations in North Africa, looking more towards other countries and partners to kind of maintain that as they shift to focus on something else. So it's, you know, I guess probably the best analogy is, you know, in the 1980s, we had organized crime. We had the five families. These guys were all powerful. You know, we, we arrested the five, the heads of the five families. And you know, what you round up with was kind of like Tony Soprano, kind of, the, you know, the, the mini mobster. And right now what we have is a, a transnational terrorist threat that's out there. It is transnational. But what we don't see is the capacity or the will or the capability to really direct international operations that would, would really come after U.S. interests. So it's like, you know, we don't stop going after the mob, right? But we, but we, we don't give it the emphasis that we did. But you've got to kind of keep an eye on it, because if you don't, it'll metastasize right back like it did before. Uh, speaking of uh, the five families, um, there's this uh, good uh, uh, mini documentary series on on uh, crime, mob, mob control of New York in the 70s and 80s in particular, before Giuliani uh, and uh, the five families and the RICO cases that were made against the, the mob and the, the heads of those five families, the commission, as it was called. And it, it, it called to mind uh, what's happening out in the streets with respect to groups like Antifa and perhaps others, but but also just street gangs that are engaged in drug trafficking in major cities that are responsible for the preponderance of the, really the overwhelming majority of the violence, like in places like Chicago, but not limited. And, and I'm wondering, I know this is a domestic issue, but we're melding uh, uh, federal, we're melding international, domestic, federal and state and local these days. And. And I wonder if you think that uh, the FBI support that Trump is providing and other federal law enforcement support Trump is providing cities like Portland uh, and uh, Chicago and Kansas City, oh, if there should be an effort to sort of take the model that Giuliani used in New York with respect to the mafia and there should be federal support over the top of states and localities to do sort of a RICO style case against the street gangs that are responsible for all this violence and domestic terrorist organizations like Antifa as needed. Well, that's absolutely, you know, something I look at because one of the portfolios I have is Homeland Security and and that's looking at the domestic security architecture and, and Homeland Security Department has a role to play on this. And so, so the first point is, is, and I think that folks have to understand is there's a difference between protesting and 
which is lawful, or even if you're going to do kind of, you know, protests and you know peaceful non-compliance with the law, whatever, that's fine. Which is what we saw in the, in the immediate aftermath of of George Floyd's death. And but what's going on in Portland, Seattle, is is something very different. Um, rioting, looting, attacking federal officers, destroying federal property. These are crimes. And when you have people show up at these crimes and they've got chainsaws and lasers and frozen water bottles, there, there's obviously, this isn't spontaneous crime. This is intentional crime. And when you see the, the tactics that they do change and, and are coordinated, it appears to be organized crime. And if it's organized crime, that means there's a conspiracy there. There's a criminal conspiracy, and a criminal conspiracy is absolutely prosecutable under RICO. So, yeah, I think from a public safety standpoint and from a, 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 a requirement for law enforcement, yeah, it's absolutely something they should look at. But here's the thing that I think, which is, if you go back and you look at the history of uh, RICO and everything else, it works best when local state and federal prosecutors are working together. Right. Because what the federal government's really concentrating on is kind of the, the, the interstate part of that activity. When, when state, local, and federal work together, that's when you really kick butt. It's when they're at odds with each other that you have difficulty. So the other, if, if you want to go look at another documentary, go look at one on Whitey Bulger, which is where the federal, state, and, and, and local guys in Boston were not cooperating. They were actually very suspicious of each other and with some good reason. But the result of that is people like Whitey Bulger kind of you know, could run you know, for 25 years without, you know, being taken down. So the problem in Portland and Seattle is, is you have local and state, not the police, but local and state officials, which are thwarting cooperation with the federal government. But the federal government can still have to go after these guys anyway for a RICO case if they can make one, and they should. He is Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, VP of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks for joining us. Back to the show, and uh, we close in remembrance of both Regis Philbin and Olivia de Havilland. Both uh, lived long, storied lives, had great careers. Uh, Regis Philbin as a broadcaster, Olivia Havilland as a, de Havilland as an actress, of course. Best Olivia de Havilland movie, Don't Take On With the Wind. It's the heiress. You're welcome. Um, best Regis Philbin impersonation, it's Dana Carvey. You're welcome. Uh, and we, we recall uh, Dana Carvey. A more recent interview he gave on Entertainment Tonight with Regis Philbin, and this was hilarious, sort of his process, how he developed Trump, his impersonation of Trump, uh, 
was combining Regis Philbin and Marlon Brando, as he explained. This was great. You know, what's interesting is that I figured out, because I was on stage the other night doing stand-up, and I was starting to do Trump, and I figured out the way I got Trump. I started with you. Yeah. Then I added Brando, and that oh. gave me Trump. Can you do a little Trump first? Let's now? do it. Let's see. Plus, if you're here with Regis, you're talking like this. Then you go to Brando, you're kind of like this. That's right. You kind of, kind of go. <laughs> no, you then you go with Brando and you move yourself to Regis and you're right here. Okay, you're tremendous. <laughs> you're tremendous. Don't be rude. Don't be rude. You're very nasty. Very nasty. Okay, you're the one of the good ones. You're one of the good ones. Okay? You're terrific. I love it. You're tremendous. You're fabulous. Wow. You got to admit, I mean... Trump is, I know he's a friend of yours. Long time. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever your politics are, your lizard brain just likes some of the stuff he does. Because when, when uh, <laughs> you know, they took our undersea drone, the Chinese yes, yes. drone, Obama's people are like, well, we're going we're gonna to do what we can and work with the appropriate authorities to stabilize <laughs> and get back the undersea vehicle and the way we can do it. And Trump just tweets, they can keep it. <laughs> <laughs> so part of you's going, wow, yeah. you can say that? <laughs> Go ahead, we got a million. <laughs> Do what you want, okay, okay. Well, very good. Oh, my very goodness. Good. Oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. How good is Dana Carvey? But that was great, the interaction with Regis, too. And, and there was another uh, example of this, just to, again, memorializing Regis, Dana Carvey doing Regis uh, on uh, on the Today Show. With uh, and uh, and this was uh, you know having fun with Kathy Lee Gifford, Kathy Lee and Hoda in, by extension. Listen. There she goes again. Hey Joy, could you see this? She's blessed. It's ten fifteen in the morning. She's got her three gl- glasses of wine and it's like buzzed. Hey, can I go back? What Michael's leaving? I I, I have the time. Strahan's going. Can I come back? I'm out of control. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, and that imitation by Dana Carvey Philbin was intended to be flattering. It was great. Thank you so much for joining us on another edition of the program. We appreciate you tuning in. Please do so again tomorrow. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.